0: From APM, American Public Media, this is a special podcast edition of WITS, podcast only. If you're not listening to this on a podcast, please be very careful. We can't guarantee your safety. Wax cylinder. I don't know what to tell you. Cassette. You could try it on a cassette. I, you know... Best of luck to you. I'm John Moe. Coming up, an interview with comedian Cameron Esposito. She's been on Conan, Marin, At Midnight. She's the voice of Carol the Cloud Person on the TV show Adventure Time. Cameron writes a biweekly column for the A.V. Club called Who in the World is Cameron Esposito? And she did all those great BuzzFeed Ask a Lesbian videos. She talks with us about making those videos, about coming out and why
1: she got into stand up. If I'm smart enough and I'm honest enough and I'm vulnerable enough and I explain myself to them, I can make them understand that I'm just a normal person.
0: Our conversation in just a bit. On the radio this week, a rebroadcast of a really fun show, episode sixty five, part one of our show with Keegan, Michael Key, and B. Beeman. Keegan, of course, is the key part in the hit comedy central show Key and Peel. He's been on shows like Fargo, Parks and Recreation. He actually if you look at IMDB, he's been in a whole lot of things. He's one of those guys that keeps showing up everywhere. You might have just seen him actually behind President Obama at the White House Correspondents Dinner. He was uh, playing the president's anger translator, Luther, the same part that he plays in Key and Peele.
2: Hold on to your lily white butts. <laughs> in our fast-changing world, traditions like the White House Correspondents Dinner are important. I mean, really?
3: It. And why am I required to come to it?
0: Here's Keegan in a clip from this week's radio show where he plays a Shakespearean Fresh Prince of Bel Air
2: mm-hmm. Listen now. And in this story find a tale of how a man such as myself, poor in spirit and frail in purse, did come to soar into the rare world of kings. My world flipped and turned upside down, in truth as I, a clown, did find myself upon the throne, the royal chair in the distant land known as Bel Air. DJ Jazzy Jeffrey, what ho? William, my
0: closest friend, our name's entwined forever. Shall we to the playground of Philadelphia? Truly, merriment awaits us in the form of placing balls into baskets.
2: Surely for being born and raised here, I know, troubles shan't show its mottled face, but soft. What noise is this? Marauders, hide thyself behind these refuse bins. I shall not. Surely these are men, not monsters. What ho, gentlemen? I am William, son of Smith. <laughs> and this is Jeffrey, a DJ of jazz.
3: We, a despicable pair of fellows, have but two entertainments anon. One is our boombox, which your shot hath struck. Not cool, dude. Two is our pursuit of being no good, specifically in this neighborhood. To wit. I shall push you now thusly and I shall upon my shoulders lift you and spin like a tempest as suits me
2: (laughs) I, mine head! (laughs) Mother, tis I your good son William Do not fret upon my countenance as ordinary brigands have set out to give me the business But worry not "'Twas a trifle and not a symptom of greater strife in the town of my birth. "'Dear
3: heavens, a map of grief has been drawn upon your childish visage. "'No more. My tender mother's heart cannot bear it. "'I have vouchsafed your voyage to the home of your auntie and uncle. "'Tonight, along with darkening clouds, you shall flee, Godspeed, to Bel-Air.'"
2: Geoffrey, will you now deign to join me there?' In the far-off kingdom known as Bel-Air? I'm there, for whither thou goest, I goest.
3: I have heard a whistle, and thus I come near. My cab arrives to pledge safe
2: passage. The fresh placard on thine vehicle, and the chancing dice that hang from yon mirror, foreshadow great adventure. Although the rare atmosphere within wounds the frontmost of my senses home to Bel Air
3: and so good sirs you see before you the home of Philip your kin who may be less
2: than kind and thus we part my friend and guide although the scent of you and your cab shall no doubt remain upon my nose both now and later
3: (laughs) okay I get it my cab smells I'm sorry Zunes, is
0: this a palace meant for man or god? It does meet my eyes most pleasantly. Though I am not to this family born, I am certain they shall take me in with love. My goodly Uncle Phil
3: approaches anon. William, son of my sister, we welcome thee to Bel Air. May I present your cousins, Carlton, Hilary, other girl, <laughs> who shall as a brother take your hand and who is
2: this? My bosom companion, Geoffrey of Jazz.
3: Guards! Grasp this low-born brute and toss him from this castle as if he were a sack of oats thrown into a horse's stall.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Who is't that knocks upon my window? A clever bird or goat?
0: Yea, I am a goat upbraided by thine uncle and
2: given to bray upon the fields while you... Ooh, is that a Nintendo? <laughs> Jeffrey, you must away. No longer can I dipple and dapple upon the courts of ball baskets. This new crown I wear is like a leaden ball. It chains me to duty and to kin. You cannot forsake me, dearest Will. How can a fresh prince be without his Jeff? I shall learn how. And now I push thee off the balcony and nothing bad shall ever happen as a result. Ah! <laughs> Oh, it will not
0: hold. My friend slumbers, cocooned in the finest silk, whilst I freeze neath this freeway of 405. This fresh prince, this stale will, once we were ensconced so close, I, the DJ, and he, the rapper, I shall be revenged upon the prince. Ha <laughs> ha
2: Play The sound of lute and drum remind me not of Philadelphia. This pleases my soul, as I am now a Bel Air Prince unfettered by his old life.
3: (laughs) Have you no concern, young Prince William,
2: or premonition of painful hubris? I know not of hubris, Uncle Phil, lest it is a a thing a butler serves.
0: (laughs) Tis I, the DJ Jeff of Jazz, disguised as a messenger. We have never met, good sir, not once, and this gift is certainly not poisoned, for why would a sword need poison gilding is not a
3: sword already deadly?
2: Ooh, shiny. <laughs> Be
3: thee wary,
2: William, for this gift bears
3: the ornamentation
2: of portent. Please, discontinue this inane talk, and let's make with the fun time sword swinging. Wee! Look at me! I'm a prince with a thing! <laughs> we'll give
3: over! Ah! I have stabbed my belly. Carlton, Hillary, other girl. <laughs> Your father
2: dies. Why? The sword is poisoned. I, ouch. Oh, I stabbed my own face. <laughs> <laughs> ah, now I stabbed Carlton and the rest. What ho? Who is this villain messenger? <gasps> it is DJ Jesse Jeff.
0: I... And this is a story all about how your life got flipped, turned upside down. (laughs) When a friend gets rich and does not share the wealth of his auntie and uncle in Bel Air, he departs his mortal coil, his soul bereft of life and the friendship of his old friend Jeff. Hmm. Keegan-Michael Key as Will, John Munson as a Marauder, Mike Fotis as a Marauder, and Uncle Phil, Christina Baldwin as Will's mom, B. Beeman as a cab driver, me as DJ Jazzy Jeff. You can check out the whole episode in your podcast machine. That's episode 65 of Wits. You'll hear Keegan and B in our Wits game show, where Keegan improvises a song set to the Radiohead tune Creep. It is an epic achievement. And, you know, we actually made a love connection between Keegan and B. sort of meet cute moment. They became pals after doing our show together. And now you can see a brand new video of B's first single off his new album, Moving to Brussels is the name of the song. And the video is uh, kind of a takeoff on the film Whiplash with Keegan in the J.K. Simmons role. We'll put that video up on our Facebook page. It is really, really funny. Be sure to check that out. And now let's take a look inside the Wits mailbag. Where is that bag? There's the bag. Okay, good, let me reach down in there. We get a question from Andrew Neil Falconer. How do you know when to stop recording the show? It seems like it just started, then it is already over. First of all, I love hearing any, any questions from falconers, especially ones that don't have to do with falconry because I'm way out of my element. How do we know when to stop recording the show? Good question. So if we're doing a show at the Fitzgerald Theater, which is where most of our shows take place, uh, we will start recording, um, you know, right around the time the show begins. And then our technical director, Corey Shrepel remains in the booth after the show is over. And you know, records some of the crowd sounds, some of the people milling about. And then uh, he, he stays there and he records things. Uh, he keeps it rolling as the band takes down their equipment and the, the stage crew comes and dismantles anything, hauls some of the furniture away. Now, Corey's still recording as the crew goes home and the cast goes home and the audience is all left. And then it's hours after the show and Corey's still sitting in the booth recording uh, because Corey just likes to question his life choices. He's sitting there recording and recording and recording and around three in the morning. That's when the ghosts come out. And nobody knows for sure if the ghosts are real ghosts or products of Corey's imagination. But he's such a good technical director that those voices show up on his recording anyway. And it's a lot of laughter uh, because the ghosts do that. Because they're evil. And so they're laughing and laughing and laughing, these ghost sounds. And that is the laughter you hear on the actual show, the haunting cackles of the undead, accompanying every wit sketch. Good question. Thanks. Andrew Klein asks, do the comedy guests ever request to appear with a certain musician or vice versa. Well, it has happened. We are sometimes aware that guests might know each other and then we try to set something up. Often it's just a, a product of um, who's available when, you know, and, and when different schedule spots open up. Um, but yeah, like uh, I, know, I know David Cross and Harmar Superstar knew each other and that made it uh, easier to arrange that particular show and, and that works out well. Uh, a lot of times what we'll do is we'll, um, We'll take two guests who we think will hit it off, and then uh, we'll invite them to a dinner party, and then they'll come over to our, our Wits apartment. We have a, a spacious Wits apartment in New York. Everyone else will be there with a, a significant other, like a, you know, a spouse or a boyfriend or girlfriend. But then these two guests show up together, and at first they don't get along. They bicker about everything, but then they, they grow to realize that they do, they do really love each other and uh, And that's a, a very special moment, like Eric Stone Street and Brandy Carlisle. It was it worked out really well. Todd Rosenfeld says, "Can you please put up a list of the instrumental music beds you guys use?" They are great, and I really appreciate them appearing clean on the podcast. Well, we don't use beds for our instruments. They are carried inside cases, Todd, like instruments are supposed to be. These are not babies. They're musical instruments, and we treat them as such. Todd. Veronica Jacobson writes, Where can I buy a Jimothy-themed fleece pullover? Referring, of course, to Jimothy, which is a name that comes up in, uh, I think, in all of our shows. There will be somebody or something named Jimothy. Where can you buy a Jimothy-themed fleece pullover? At the moment, you can buy it anywhere pullovers and magic markers are sold in one place. From there, you have to assemble it by yourself. Jackson Stonehammer, who <laughs> has the Twitter handle Crazy Uncle Larry, which is so much of a worse name than Jackson Stonehammer, professional wrestler. Jackson Stonehammer, Civil War veteran. Jackson Stonehammer, private eye, writes, What states do Jimothy and Beckany hail from? My guess is Pennsylvania. Good guess. Jimothy is actually from Verjixaco, and Beckany is from New Hampshire, Anna, and they lived for a time together in Mississippi. If you have questions for the Wits mailbag, go ahead and tweet them. Use hashtag Wits mailbag. This week we talked with comedian Cameron Esposito, her sophomore comedy album Same Sex Symbol debuted at number one on the iTunes comedy charts and was named Best Comedy Album of the Year by the A.V. Club, Consequence of Sound, Laugh Button, and Paste Magazine. Cameron was passing through Minneapolis recently and stopped by our studio. You originally started out in, in improv, is that right?
1: I did, yeah. I started doing improv in college. I went to school in Boston and... The college that I went to, Amy Poehler, had gone to this school 10 uh, years before I was there. She was in this improv group. No so pressure. So I thought to myself, <laughs> if I just pretend to be a banana for a certain number of hours a day, then I can be on Saturday Night Live.
0: <laughs> That's really the the prescribed path. Yeah, 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 yeah. And did you do that after college, too?
1: I did. The day after I graduated from school, I auditioned for a local theater, uh, improv theater in Boston, and I got... And I landed the job. Nice. So I'm obviously kind of a Big savant yeah. um, <laughs> at, at this. But uh, and then I, I worked there for a while. I worked at another theater in Boston. All that time, I had day jobs. I would like work with students all day. I worked in special ed, and then I would like put on a different shirt and then go and make jokes
0: and do improv. What kind of work were you doing in special ed?
1: Well, first I worked at a charter school for underserved folks in the Boston area, and then I worked in special ed with severe special needs kids. So like kids that spoke with computers. Mm. I loved that job. That's what I thought I would do. So I went back to school um, to get my social work master's in Chicago, which is where I'm from. I moved home and went to the University of Chicago and was like, I'm going to, you know, really make a difference in these kids' lives. And then I immediately dropped out to become a stand-up comic.
0: (laughs) Well, what did you love about it originally? What, What sparked you?
1: Honestly, I think I've always been doing the same thing. I just didn't realize how the how things were connected. Like in college, I was a theology major because I was interested in what's important to people. I was interested in how to connect with people. When I was working with kids with severe special needs and they needed some assistance to communicate with the world, it still was the same thing. How do I connect with you? How do I see the you that is you? And i that's still what I do now, I think, on stage. I talk about what's important to me. I try and see what's important to the audience. It's just now that I do it with like more swearing. but. <laughs>
0: It's the same job. (laughs) You do it later in the evening. Yeah. Um, So then why did you you drop out of school at University of Chicago?
1: A woman that was in my program turned to me one day because I was still doing shows at night. And then I was working um, at a home for uh, kids that were placed out of foster care at the moment. And they were looking for foster homes. And she was just like, hey, you seem to talk so passionately about stand-up. And I know that you love your the work you're doing during the day but you do realize you don't have to have like two careers (laughs)
0: most people just have one one. career yeah yeah yeah. and
1: it seems like since you talk about comedy so much in this passionate way that maybe you should consider having that be your career i don't even remember that woman's name wow because it was uh, just a passing acquaintance but sometimes people can change your life when they say to you the things that somebody else should have said to you that even knew you slightly better
0: (laughs) yeah yeah what what part of chicago are you from originally
1: I'm from the western suburbs. Oak Park, uh, actually, a little place called Western Springs. It's a couple suburbs further west from Oak Park, okay. but pretty close. Yeah,
0: my wife is from Oak Park, and uh, we've been down there a lot. And I love the comedy scene down there because it it does seem like, in keeping with this person you're talking about, it seems like a blunt group of people.
1: Oh yeah, I mean Chicago's a tough city to live in. Like yes. it is, it makes you tough. You have to be. I mean, you have to be able to outlast the weather. But also, it's like. It's all of that weather and then it's all of those people, you know. So it's really compact and aggressive and you're fighting your way through the snow and you're doing it as a group. Mm -hmm. And I think that that, you know, transitions into the character of the comedy scene, specifically the stand-up scene. It's very much like you got to be out every night. You got to do three shows a night. If there's a foot of snow and you didn't leave your house, like, where were you? We were there, (laughs) you know. You let down
0: comedy in general. Yeah,
1: it's a very... um, you have a lot of tough critics, and the, those are other, your fellow comics. Mm. Everybody's really tough on each other.
0: So at some point in here, you you switched from, from improv to stand-up?
1: I did when I was about 25, yes. I'd been doing improv professionally, and then when I moved back to Chicago to try to get my master's, I found stand-up because I, I did it like once or twice. It just took that many times for me to realize that for me personally, I was about five years into coming out and mm-hmm. I was still pretty uncomfortable with myself as a person. I from I had this really conservative Italian Catholic family, this suburban background. I came out while attending this conservative Catholic college that did not include sexual orientation in its non-discrimination policy. So wow. technically I could have been kicked out of school for being gay. And so I I had all this stuff inside of me. And when I performed on stage, I loved performing, but then I had to be a character. And I Mm -hmm. kind of felt like my whole life was being a character. You know, I didn't really know that I was gay because I didn't know gay was a thing you could be, but I still was wearing this external character of being a straight person. And I finally was just sick of it. Like, I was sick of being a character on stage and I was sick of being a character off stage. So I found stand-up and I realized, oh, I can, like actually talk about the person i am and i can kind of control people's response to it in that like if i'm smart enough and i'm honest enough and i'm vulnerable enough and i explain myself to them i can make them understand that i'm just a normal person and that is i think really the impetus for me starting doing stand up
0: what were those first stand up shows like
1: oh i mean terrible i didn't realize you <laughs> needed to use a microphone <laughs> I started producing stand-up shows before I was really doing stand-up. I lived in my parents' house in the suburbs, um, and I went on MySpace, which was like the the thing, the way that social media existed at the time, and I I looked up, uh, like, who are the best comics in Chicago, and then I rented a theater space, and then I booked all of those comics to come perform on the show that I told them I had, which, by the way, didn't exist yet. (laughs) And then I then I did that. I did that for like eight months. I produced this show. And why? To, it. to
0: make money or just to get exposed to the comedy or what?
1: I think, well, I've always just kind of done things my own way. And I think in my mind, I was like,, uh, I'll just I'll invite them to come to meet me. And then when I go to their shows, then they won't feel. Then they'll feel like they know me. Uh And this is actually like a brilliant idea, but I just didn't realize it at the time. I was just like, this is how you do this. You just throw a show. But it is brilliant because then when you you feel more comfortable when you're starting at open mics and things like that. As a woman and as a gay person, I was such in the minority. At the time that I was in Chicago, there was only one other female stand-up comic that was going to mics regularly. So I ran this show... And then when I went to Mike's, I didn't have to feel like such an outsider because there were like a hundred dudes mm-hmm. and then one other lady.
0: <laughs> um, so you, you talk about this, this insular, not, not insular, but a, a teamwork aspect to Chicago, like a we're all in this together kind of thing. And then you leave that and you go out to Los Angeles, which strikes me as very much a, a gold rush town. Like I'm out here for me. <laughs> I'm going to do this for me.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's definitely more of a, we're all running a separate race. <laughs> right. we, the paths do not intersect.
0: Yes, yes. It's nice to see you here on the course, but I'm yeah. going to just keep running on my definitely own. Definitely
1: less of a team, more of like a break, and then everybody runs to their corners. Um, <laughs> Why did you move to L.A.? I hit the point in Chicago where I could do all of the things I had set out to do. So I, um, I was headlining the shows I wanted to headline. I was only doing stand-up for a job. I was um, starting to write more. And I felt like I saw my life in, like, 10 years. And in Chicago, if you're making your money doing live shows, that's really, like, that's it. There's nothing further than that. There's no
0: subsistence. You're you're getting by.
1: And I realized um, that's all the opportunity that exists there. It's Mm -hmm. a wonderful opportunity. It's a great place to come up. It's like this beautiful incubator. But then I would be you know, 45, and I would have to leave my house every night and, you know, go on the road just to be able to make a living. And I just, it didn't jive with like the things I wanted in my life. I wanted a family and I wanted a house and I wanted some stability Mm -hmm. and occasionally to be able to stay in one night. So um, I realized LA is actually where the jobs are that are in my profession. And so I moved to uh, further my work options. And how Um, long
0: ago was that?
1: About two and a half years.
0: Yeah. How's that worked out? How, how is the L.A. you imagined compared to the L.A. you experienced?
1: Well, I think I actually thought it would be worse. I, I mean, I came in with this Chicago mentality that, like, L.A. is, you know, you move there because you have a wild dream and you throw everything right. in the back of a convertible and, like, you got no responsibility. And it turns out that um, the people that I encounter are fellow comics who had the same thought that I did. They're driven, they want stability, they want relationships. It's mm-hmm. like these very functional... You know, comedy has this stereotype of being these people that can't function in the world. And <laughs> most of my friends that are really successful, you know, they're on TV shows. They have to be up at 6 o'clock in the morning to shoot that TV show. So they, like, go to bed early. And they, mm-hmm. you know, they have partners that they live their lives with. And it's actually... um like a very responsible town in a way that I just didn't realize.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, I've noticed that about, about comics, the ones that I've run across. Like you, you run across some difficult people who are doing the, the open mics or, you know, those sort of entry-level jobs. Those can be some tricky people to get along yeah. with sometimes. <laughs> not always. Yeah. But I often find that the people who are doing really well tend to be very nice and, and pretty well adjusted because I, I think in the, the world that we're living in now, you can't be a secret jerk and have nobody find out about it. You kind of have to be a presentable, decent human being.
1: That is such a great point. Especially, you're you're exactly right because, So I mean, this is a podcast, but I also know the, I mean, so many of my friends have come out to do your guys' live show. So I know that we're talking about some of the same people. Yeah. And you're right. When you're a comic, what you are is you're a small business person and your business is yourself. So, I mean, it's exhausting sometimes because you have to try and sell yourself the the product that is your thoughts and Mm -hmm. your um, podcast appearances and your things that you're writing, your essays and think pieces and your appearances on television. Um, But the thing about that is, like, you really do have to have a package that is... Moderately appealing to people. I think it would be too exhausting to fake it. I really do.
0: Speaking about TV, I, I've, it seems to me we just had Cristela Alonzo on our show, mm-hmm. and um, delightful person. And her show got to air because there was this story that of her life that she zeroed in on, and then she just pushed like hell, pushing uphill to get this thing on the air. And it, it does seem like the impetus is on. The, the comic or the, the actor, or the, the, to be the, the show creator, to to really believe in that thing so much with the knowledge that even though you might believe in it, it still probably won't work out. Like, like yeah. how, do you, how do you choose, like, what part of you and what part of the story you have to tell you want to push that hard? You want to put that many chips in in the bet
1: That is such a good question. I think, first of all, isn't it arrogant? Aren't we arrogant to believe this about ourselves? But I also think that a yeah. lot of the way I go benefit... on the radio
0: and talk into a microphone as if what I have to say is interesting to me.
1: But I also think a lot of people could benefit from viewing themselves this way. You know, like if you if you believe that you can change the world, which Christella does or I do, you know, mm-hmm. then I, I would just challenge you to prove yourself right. Which I think is the whole point of stand up or having a career in comedy or having a radio career is mm-hmm. just like. I'm gonna try and see if I'm actually correct about this. And in terms of how you figure out what to zero in on, what is interesting that I found is that people will tell you um, because when you're inside your own narrative, it does seem very like no, this is just how this is. Um, I made these. I made this series of videos for BuzzFeed, and I want to ask about that. They're called Ask a Lesbian. Yeah, and I. BuzzFeed was like, hey, we want to work with you in some way. And I said, well, this is how I want to do it. I want people to ask us questions, and I will make these, I will have these, like, short little responses, and then we'll edit it together and we'll put it out. And the way I responded to these questions, these are questions I've gotten for my whole life. Like, right. why does a lesbian look like a man? And the answer is, well, because you think that short hair is only for men. Mm-hmm. So that's really on you. <laughs> right. Why is the gay community so flamboyant? Well, why is the straight community... With your public displays of affection, your big overblown weddings. Keep it at home. I don't want to see it. How do you feel when someone thinks your date is a friend? Fine, I feel fine. Because I can't tell if three couples are dating like a dude and a chick, what would they even do together? Is it better to come out or stay closeted? Out. Get out of there! Get out of there! How do I, a lesbian, make myself visible to others? I mean, he's got. Multiple Th- thousands of, m- of questions, millions, multiple million. Well, yeah. Thousands of questions yeah. and multiple millions of views, uh, like of views, right. tens of millions of views. Wow. And I was thinking to myself like, what? I can't believe this is even new. Like, I feel like i have just saying this stuff I've been saying forever, but I think it's just that, um, sometimes you're inside your own brain. I've been saying that to myself forever. I've been saying that interpersonally to one other person. It turns out that's not saying that you know, on a teeny, well-edited, beautiful little thing where you've had your makeup done, you right. know? And so it does matter. And people will tell you, you know, like, that is interesting. I've never heard anybody say that before.
0: Well, it's it's this dialogue that I think a lot of people are probably too nervous to ask. Like, nobody's going to sure. walk up to you on the street.
1: <laughs> Actually, you'd be surprised.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Few people will, but some some will. Um, but the anonymity of being able to submit it through BuzzFeed is, is probably a big part of it.
1: Absolutely. That, I mean, I also think, People do ask me a lot of questions. People have for my, you know, since I've come out. But I think also the like gathering them all together in one place, like, let's just knock this out and let me speak. Because I think also there's that weird line that you're writing if you are somebody that's in a minority group where, like, um, sometimes people will say, like, I don't want to speak for my whole people. Right. But the thing is, is, like, if I don't speak for lesbians, then it turns out straight people they have to be the ones that provide the answers. Like, if there's never a lesbian that's like, I will say the things on behalf of all of us. You know, if there's never, like, a William Wallace, then... <laughs> we you need know. a
0: William Wallace of lesbians. Yeah, 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 yeah. And
1: I'm great. I look great in face paint. So um, <laughs> I feel like there has to be somebody that's going to step up and say these things. Because otherwise, other people get to... Run the conversation, people that are less affected by this. So I'm happy to be part of the conversation.
0: You you mentioned earlier when we were talking about how when you were growing up and then going conservative uh, Catholic family, conservative college you went to, that that being gay you didn't even recognize as a thing. I mean, surely you must have known gayness existed in the world. Did you think it just didn't apply to you?
1: Will you believe me when I say I did not know it existed in the world? Really? I mean, I th- I knew that there was like such a thing, but I didn't realize it was um, like an unchangeable fact about that person. I thought it was a behavior, mm, and I thought it a was choice. a choice, a behavior that was a sin. Um okay. And I didn't really know that it was something you could be inherently. I mean, I wasn't. I didn't watch uh, television shows with gay characters, and I knew no out gay people. Mm-hmm. So I had no idea that this is the way a person could just be until the moment that I kissed a woman for the first time (laughs) and then it was like the guy in Memento with his tattoos being like oh oh no <laughs> the
0: scales it fell from your me. eyes. Yeah, <laughs> I did it this whole time. Mm-hmm. I committed lesbian.
1: Yeah, <laughs> um, Joaquin Phoenix swinging away in signs. I always think about that too. Where it's like he puts the whole thing. This is why I have the baseball bat. The woman she told, me, and then the alien. You know, I was like. What we...
0: <laughs> so then, homophobia is the space alien that's that can't be exposed <laughs> to water in this. Scenario. Yes,
1: absolutely. Okay, and... I mean, I wasn't. I was. I will say, I wasn't. I never never condemned anybody. I was just like, um, I don't understand why people are making this choice. Mm. So I never was like, I don't know that I actually thought. I found a paper that I wrote for my high school senior religion class. Cause wow. I went to a Catholic high school where you took religion slash gym. So half the, <laughs> half the week you were like playing dodgeball and then the other half you were, that's you pro- know, reading the gospels.
0: With organized religion, that's not all yeah, that far I apart, agree, really, I agree. conceptually. So
1: uh, I found this paper that I wrote where it was like, "What do you think about um, homosexuality?" And I I wrote like, "I because I'm not gay, I have no way of knowing what it is like to act on these feelings." Wow. But I just really hope these people are okay. Yeah. What a little sweetie! She doesn't even know <laughs> why she doesn't want to kiss her boyfriend.
0: So, so it never occurred to you that that the reason you didn't want to kiss your boyfriend was because of Because of this.
1: Nope, it didn't. Because I also think for women, it's a little bit different. So if you are a man and you display some characteristics that people think might be a little bit gay, they will tell you. Mm -hmm. They will tell you if you are a straight guy and you accidentally like high five your friend too hard. I mean, dudes tell other dudes from the moment that they are children, which is why, you know, men have this whole like, no, not me. You know, like that's the whole thing. But women, we have this. Acceptable parameters of like friendship with each other, where like you can have sleepovers and braid each other' hair, and it doesn't mean anything. And right. so, I don't think that it's really um, evident. This is true not just for me, but I've spoken to lots of other women who came out who had like a similar feeling that that it just wasn't clear to them what yeah. what things meant.
0: When I was when I was growing up, I remember the the um, stereo among the stereotypes of lesbian women was that they were humorless that you know the, the you know how dare you make a joke about about anything and and it it strikes me how far it's come you know since then not just with you but with Ellen DeGeneres and and so many other people who you know are out there now i wonder if if that old stereotype is something that you've run into. I mean, I'm sure you've run into all sorts of
1: stereotypes. That's funny. I actually feel like the stereotype goes the other way. First of all, yeah, we do run this field. Um, But also, (laughs) it's funny because I feel like people... There's so few women that get to a certain point in stand-up. That is changing now. Mm -hmm. Luckily, we are branching out. But there are so few women that people will say to me... Like, oh, you remind me of Ellen. I'm like, you're just thinking of another my stand-up is like nothing like Ellen's stand-up. It is a wonderful compliment that somebody would say that to me. She I love her stand-up. Yeah. But I also sometimes in interviews people will ask like who are your influences? And I feel like I can't say I can't say like Rwanda Sykes, Rosie O'Donnell, <laughs> and Ellen DeGeneres. Because I don't want people to automatically assume, like, that we're all the same or that we're all saying the same stuff. Um, I also ca- came up in such a different era in comedy. I never had a period of time where I was in the closet in my stand-up career. Mm-hmm. Like, I got to start um, being out. And then I also have always played alternative rooms. Not lifestyle alternative, meaning gay <laughs> Comedy meaning, but alternative. Like alternative yeah. comedy, meaning, like, Pat Oswalt and Paul F. Tompkins and... Even Chris Hardwick, you know, like all these people that... And then also Sarah Silverman and Maria Bamford, like that's the the movement right now is towards this really personal comedy. And I've always played mixed rooms. I've never like been just like, I work the gay cruise circuit. You know, I've right. always... And it's a privilege that is afforded to me because of the time that I started where it turns out gay people can be in straight bars and not worry about being, um, well, this is a really serious thing to say, but like beaten up or killed for being there. So... Yeah. I get to be a person that's in mixed spaces talking about this, which is really cool.
0: Um, You've been... Your career has been blowing up so much in the last few months. It's, you know, you're you're one of these people that I had heard about before. I was oh, into your earlier look stuff, at you. but now you know, now you're like you 2 or something. But um,
1: I'm on every iPod you're on and every iPhone.
0: <laughs> yeah, I'm just like a little. Look ghost. at my
1: yellow tinted sunglasses.
0: <laughs> it's a beautiful day for cameras. <laughs> it's
1: you know. a beautiful
0: day. Um, so what are you are you steering now? more towards acting? I've heard you do some voiceover work uh, or is it still like stand-up is your religion? That's that's where you're going to stay?
1: No, I love stand-up. I'm so happy right now because I get to tour so much. I've been basically on the road for two years right now which is really nuts and um, I'm working towards developing my next hour so I can have a special out there because I have a couple albums and I really, I really want that special. Mm-hmm. So th- I am going to stay on the road but acting... And I'm developing a TV show right now and I'm writing a book. And these things are so exciting because I've been doing stage performance since I was 19. Mm -hmm. And I do really feel like, not that it's like boring or old, but it's just like, You start this job if you want a challenge, you Mm -hmm. know, like the whole thing is like fail, 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 fail forever. Get a little bit better so you don't realize you're failing. Fail, fail, fail more. Like you have to be the kind of person that like always wants to tackle the next thing. And I love that I don't know anything about acting. Like I love that I got hired to be on a couple episodes of Marion and I just had to like show up there and fake my way through it and figure out how to do this thing for me and my personality that is like a dream come true so i'm really excited that i have all this stuff coming up that i'm going to totally fake until i figure out how to do it
0: cameron esposito thank you so much for being here and i hope we can bring you back and bring you over to the the fitzgerald theater for wits
1: i would love to do that john
0: That's it for this podcast Only Wits Make sure you don't tell the radio Only Wits audience about this You know how emotional they get Corey Schreppel is our technical director Larissa Anderson is the senior producer Peter Clowney is executive producer I'm John Moe, bye now